This edition of Montgomery Talks Education with Doug Tallman is one of a three-part series called MCPS 2020. For other points of view, be sure not to miss the other episodes. Welcome to Montgomery Talks, our regular podcast on Montgomery County issues. And our guest today is Jack Smith. He's worked for the State Department of Education. He was a principal in Tokyo. He's also worked in the Calvert County School System. And on July 1st, 2016, he became Montgomery County's school superintendent. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Thank you very much. Good to be here. First off, I'd like to talk a little bit about the budget. Uh, no matter what, Montgomery County is going to spend somewhere around $2.9 billion on the county school system in uh, the next fiscal year. But that number is, uh, at least coming from County Executive Mark Elrich, is about, is about $14.5 million different from what the board requested. What exactly does that $14.5 million represent? Well, it represents uh, the extension and the acceleration of a lot of the work we've been doing around equity, around uh, reducing guidelines for class size, both at our schools with high levels of poverty and our schools with lower levels of poverty. It uh, involves summer programming and after-school programming. It involves additional support for ESOL programs, special ed programs, counseling, student well-being. And so a lot of it is staff, you know, almost 92% of our costs are staff costs. And so it's both uh, the staffing and the equipment and materials to, to operate those programs. I'm sure a lot of people are doing the math, and it works out, if I've done it correctly, about one half of 1% of the total requests. And I think some people are going to ask, you know, there isn't one half of 1% in the budget that could be cut without hurting vital programs. Well, absolutely, we cannot do these things, but it's imperative that we keep moving forward. And I believe incremental increases make a lot more sense. And then you always have to consider that we have to we have to reserve twenty five million dollars right next right now for next year. So starting July one, the first twenty five million dollars of our budget will be money we reserve from this year. We'll have to do that same thing next year. And so when you do the math around that, what you actually have is a kind of de facto reduction if you're not getting, you know, that level of, of funding. And then we also have increased expenses both for growth and because the cost of doing business just increases over time. So even though we're talking about a relatively small amount of money, it's a lot of money when you consider it comes directly from our taxpayers and the impact on them as they pay their taxes. And it's a, a relatively small amount of our budget. It does allow us to do some of the extra things that we want to need to do as an organization and to keep growing our efforts around our, all of our students and, and in particular our students who need additional support. So it's, a, you know, it's the work. The next steps will be the budget is, uh, will move to, I guess, the County Council's Education and Culture Committee, and that's a three-member panel within the, the council that oversees MCPS, the college, the libraries, and a few other things, I believe. And then they'll make a recommendation to the full council, who will then have the final say. Have I, have I got that about right? That's correct. And the school system has a number of advocates who will be out in force all through this process, pushing to close that gap. What role does MCPS have in marshalling those troops? Any? Well, I don't think it's our role to ever tell people what to think or how to advocate. It's our role to share information broadly with our community and talk about what's working well, what we need, where areas we need to improve and move ahead. And then people use that information to advocate from whatever position that they believe they should and need to for the position they're advocating for. And so I don't, I don't ever think it's my job to try and rile people up. And I understand that there are a lot of competing interests in this county. That's very clear. There are a lot of different human needs 
and improvements that can be made. And my job is specifically, I'm hired to advocate for the school system. So that's what I'll do. And I'll provide information to the county council members, to the county, continue to provide it to the county executive. And we'll continue to work together to try and resolve this. You know, people talk about collaboration a lot and we're quick to think it means automatic agreement. What it means is we're working together to work with competing needs and issues and areas where we don't have all the things that any of us need to improve the lives of our students and our residents in County. Last week, we spoke with uh, Jennifer Martin. Uh, she's the vice president of the Montgomery County Education Association. In her eyes, um, what needs to be taken is, quote, more courageous action, because what is budgeted is different than what is adequate. So to take the question from a different point of view, did the school board ask for enough? Well, that's, you know, that's an interesting question um, when you think about that, because I certainly understand uh, her position, and I do not disagree with it in the larger context of, of the state of Maryland. Because if you think back to the special session, I believe it was in November of 2007, where essentially the state backed way off of the ongoing support for the Bridge to Excellence, what's commonly called the Thornton Commission. And they backed way off of that, uh, that support and that system of allocating money, and then we went into a general recession, which hit every person, or virtually every person in this state and nation to some degree, and it hit some of them really, really hard. And during five years, this school system got not one penny over the requirement of the law, not one penny. And people work together to kind of keep things together. I happened to walk in the door as the county council gave historic levels of funding to the system in the spring of 2016. And I arrived and it was a kind of catch up and, you know, make up in terms of that. And at the same time, there was a cost to our uh, employee groups because their contracts weren't fully funded in that process. And, and MCA was very much involved in that process. And so when we think about all these things, uh, I understand Ms. Martin's position, but the school board's position and my position are to deal with the reality of what is right now. And anyone who's been listening to Mr. Elrich since he was elected, they've heard him say over and over, we have a lot of competing needs, we have a lot of challenges, and we don't have the resources to pay them. And I have exactly the same conversation on the other side of the balance sheet around school construction. So I need money both for operating and school construction, and I don't think there's much appetite for another 9% tax increase like they had in 2016. So when you put all that together, I think it's more complicated than just we didn't reach hard enough or far enough as a school system or a school board. Getting back to what you said the $14.5 million would pay for, the school system has its own budget gurus who can sit back and say, these are the board's policies, and this is the amount of revenue we've got, or this is the amount of resources we've got. We'll make it work, or we'll, we can either spread the peanut butter a little, little thinner across the slice of bread or, or what have you. So is it really fair to say that you know, things like some of the programs you mentioned are going to suffer if that $14.5 million isn't approved? I want to, I'm really glad you asked that question because I want to be very clear. What I said is we can extend, we can expand, we can accelerate. We're not going to stop doing the things we're doing right now. This is new work and would be new staff positions and additional services we could provide in the area of special education services, ESOL services, services to our highest poverty schools. So you're absolutely right. It's it's not about, I, I never, you know, I'm never a person who says, well, let's cut the, cut the football team so we can get people riled up. That's not it. But these expansions and extensions, we work very broadly with lots of stakeholders in the community as we build the budget about things we want to do. One of the examples, for example, 
programs. We, we, we've put in several dual language programs the last few years. This year, we wanted to put forward a, a uh, pilot around language ex- exploration in schools that aren't going to have dual language programs or in schools where there are one-way immersion programs and we can spread services to all the students in school who may not be in that one-way immersion. So that's the kind of extension we're talking about. And that was a real interest in the part of our many, many members of our community and our budget stakeholder group about extending that language opportunity. So when we say this, we won't stop the things we're doing. We just won't be able to extend or expand uh, as much or as fast as we had hoped to around these things. Let's get off the budget for a minute. Uh, okay. any, any school system as big as Montgomery County is going to be extraordinarily complex. And the complexity means parents have lots of questions of their own about how MCPS operates. We spoke to a handful of parents and got some of those questions. The first one is we'll hear from is uh, Dominique Lewis, whose son is a junior at Northwest High School. She called in and provided this question. My biggest concern is safety, not that there have you know, I've noticed any safety concerns, but with all, you know, the things that have been happening across the country in schools, I think my biggest concern is just what precautions or steps are being taken to unfortunately prepare for this. Because, I'm, you know, we all hope that it never happens to us and to our children. But as the news tells us, it can happen to anybody and anywhere. Dr. Smith, are MCPS kids safe? Well, I think Ms. Lewis's question is one of the most compelling questions in our society today, and I certainly understand why she feels the way she does, and I and I completely get that. And we have embarked uh, two years ago, almost three years ago, on an effort to review all of our schools. So we're looking at the physical structure. We've looked at the use of cameras and equipment and technology for that. We've looked at visitor management systems. We've looked at the supervision within the school building by the adult, being aware, being in the moment, being in the right place all the time, because the vast majority of our students and our residents do the right thing. But she is absolutely accurate. It can happen anywhere, and we have to be vigilant. So we've done a lot of the physical safety around the physical structure and the supervision and the monitoring and the care for students in schools. We've also uh, upgraded significantly our rechecking of staff members so that we are uh, redoing fingerprints that are now old to see if they pick something up. We're also redoing child protective service background checks. And we're, those used to be done, you know, they used to not be done at all when I started teaching. Then in the 80s and 90s, we started doing them in a more consistent base when someone's hired. Now we're going back and looking and saying, we're going to check periodically because something may have happened that's in the public record and we don't know about it. So we're doing that with our employees. We're also being uh, ever more vigilant in our comprehensive and consistent and system-wide training of employees about what to look for how to respond. You know, it's not our business to decide guilt or innocence. It's our business to report. And then somebody else takes that over in in the Health and Human Services Department. And we do that. And then finally, we've really upgraded how we look at what we teach children at younger ages and in a very consistent grade over grade manner. We're teaching personal body safety lessons now. So the children step up and say, excuse me, I don't think the way this adult is acting is appropriate. And, and that's particularly important. We've also uh, increased our uh, drills. So we have active assailant drill drills, our physical disaster drills, like tornado drills. You know, we used to do just 
fire drill. So it's really a comprehensive look. And then finally, I would say one of the things that uh, we're really working on right now is the $45 million in our capital request that so far hasn't been funded for next year. $28 million of it was around safety enhancements, including the last handful of schools. It's about 17 schools that do not have the guided vestibule entrance uh, that is, we think, so critical. And so we're really looking at how we can work with the, that situation and continue to upgrade and uh, make sure that all of our schools have guided vestibules within the next couple of years. And we've done a lot in the last two years, but we still have a ways to go with those schools. And of course, new schools are built with those. So it's very comprehensive look. And, you know, I would say as a, a parent of five adult children, I, my children were all in school when Columbine happened. And I was a school principal. It changed my entire worldview when that happened as my children went through school. And now I have six grandchildren in Maryland and two other states. So I think about this on a personal, professional level and on an MCPS level all the time. I just want to take a step back at you because you mentioned about double checking employees. You hired, mm -hmm. um, I believe it was, I believe the number was in the ballpark of a thousand teachers um, at the start of the school year. Yes. Each of those students, each of those teachers went through a background check, correct? Yes. Now, were those background checks completed before they were in the classroom? Uh, the goal is, yes, we start the check immediately, and we've been able, because of technology, to really accelerate. It used to take weeks. Now it takes hours or only a couple of days. So everybody is checked. The goal is to have everyone, the checking is done, and then the reporting back comes back almost immediately now. And that's a, real, a really important good enhancement that has occurred. The other thing that's occurred is, is we found out last year that the Maryland State Department of Education had, crossed the, had stopped the cross-state checking. And so we instituted that immediately as the system. And we, we put that in as a Montgomery County initiative. So we're also doing the cross-state checking, not just the Maryland state checking. And, and as we work with the fingerprinting, that also has been profoundly enhanced. And a new movement forward around fingerprinting is the ability for the, that to stay current and available to us all the time forever. And that's a tremendous advantage at the federal level as we think about what, what happens. If somebody shows up now in Virginia or North Carolina or in another state uh, next weekend, we'll know about it next week. So those are the sorts of changes that I think help us continue and improve our ability to take care of the children that we serve. I find it interesting that you use the phrase, it's the goal to do this. And so I just want to restate the question. Were there any teachers in classrooms at the start of the school year, freshly hired, whose background check hadn't been completed by the time the first day of school occurred? No, the background check is completed. Okay. And then it's our, it's our goal to have that information before the first day of school. So if we, we don't let someone report to a school without that check being done. And no. but we, as I just shared with you, we are dependent on a vast number of different agencies and organizations to do their job well, too. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been talking with Dr. Jack Smith, Superintendent of Montgomery County Public Schools. I'm Doug Tallman, Senior Reporter at Montgomery Community Media. We're going to take a short break. MCM, your community media center, is making Montgomery County a great place to live through programs like 21 This Week. Montgomery County's hardest-hitting political talk show keeps you up to date with the local political scene. Montgomery Community Media. Our middle name is Community.
So we're back with Montgomery Talks with Dr. Jack Smith, superintendent of Montgomery County Public Schools. I want to continue uh, the, the safety angle on another case that has been on people's minds since since Halloween, and that's, of course, the uh, case that occurred in Damascus High. You know, I, I keep hearing that the boys didn't have adult supervision, and that is in part why this event took place. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail of what happened, but as much as that makes sense... I also kind of want to say that, gee, I would like to think that you put four Montgomery County Public School System boys together with no adult, I'm not going to get attacked with a broomstick. I mean, is there anything lacking in terms of just teaching kids common sense? I mean, I, I, maybe you can't teach that, but gosh, it just seems like this was a horrific event and something should have kicked in long before anybody was hurt. So I, I very much appreciate that question because that's certainly some one of the things that has been and was on my mind right after that. And, and I think the thing that we discovered that was lacking was a consistent, proactive, purposeful conversation with students at the beginning of every season in sports, at the beginning of every new activity, if it's band or drama or a, a club, that where we sit down with our students as an adult advisor, which I did for many years, both uh, in the middle school sports program and in high school and middle school activities programs and worked with kids on all sorts of things. And uh, but, but one of the things that has to happen every single time is adults have to talk to students and say, you know, there's sometimes things start out uh, one way and end up in a very different way, in a very horrible, terrible way that can involve real victimization, real violence, real uh, in criminal behavior, allegedly, all sorts of things. And so we've asked all of our after school program uh, people in MCPS. If there are programs that we operate for, activities, arts, whatever it is, then we've asked them to proactively sit at the beginning of each season to go through some materials with students about bullying and hazing and other activities that lead then. You know, some people have said, well, why do you call it hazing? Then call what happened on October 31st hazing, but that sort of stuff often starts with hazing or kids messing around or kids wanting to be mean to each other and it goes too far and it becomes really horrific. And so we've asked coaches, advisors, activity directors to sit down every single season and we're actually collecting this information back that it's been done and that they go through a, a lesson with the students uh, in, a, in a very conversational and, and uh, interactional way about what this looks like and, and where, when to raise your hand and say to another person, stop what you're doing and then to tell the adult or the adults who are there to say, no, we're not even going to joke about this, kids. We're not going to have conversation about it and to be very proactively respond to it if a student believes that he or she can push on other kids and treat them in certain ways, either verbally or physically. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a, a change in our system. I believe it's been going on in many, many programs for decades and, and forever. But we think it needs to happen systematically, methodically, methodically, purposefully, and consistently. Every time we bring groups of kids together, we, so theoretically, let's say you're in four sports, over or three sports over a four-year high school experience, and that's what you do. You don't join other clubs or things, but you do those. Then you would have heard this conversation at least twelve times while you're in high school. I believe that's what the schools do. The best work we do is around teaching, is around building understanding in students, around building their own efficacy and their sense of empowerment to say, you know what, 
you can't treat me this way, or you know what, you can't treat her this way or him this way because this is one of my teammates or one of my friends or another member of our peer group. So that is the that is the most significant uh, work I think that we've done this year around around student safety and around teaching students, as you say, you know how to treat one another and and what to do. Another issue facing uh, MCPS is overcrowding. School systems, the fastest growing school district in the state, I believe, or certainly near the top. Katya Marin had an interesting take on it. She's a parent from Bethesda. And let's listen. I have really one main concern, well, one primary concern, and I'm really concerned that MCPS isn't keeping up on the facilities front. They have aging infrastructure on the one hand, and on the other, they have capacity challenges. We have 9,500 students in portables right now, and almost half of our schools are enrolled at 100% or more. Our high schools right now are about to face a huge overcrowding crisis, and the work First part about it is it's one we probably could have predicted. And so really, it's a concern about MCPS's ability to do long-range planning. They haven't proven themselves capable of doing a good job with the forecasting or with getting capacity online before the students arrive. And, and now they've got a new forecasting system that we've invested a lot of money into. And even that, they don't appear to be applying either the rigor or the common sense to use it in a way that will be useful. First off, is the school system accurately forecasting growth? I mean, is she right? Well, over time, I think if you look back at the record and as you introduced me today, you said I came here in 2016, but I've done some looking at the record. Countywide, the forecasting has been uh, highly accurate. The problem is across individual schools, sometimes, or clusters of schools, it, there was too much variation. And you'd have to look back at the record to see what that, that record looks like and, and how much variation there's been. And it's been in you know, the single digits for everything that I've seen in terms of the forecast versus the actual. One of the, the issues, though, is that we want to get to a more uh, granular level around forecasting. So it's not just countywide, it's not just by cluster, but also looks at schools and school levels in counties. And so we have, she's right, instituted a new forecasting method. This is the very first year of it. The first forecast came out uh, in October. We will continue to refine that. I mean, one of the staff here uses the example of when you're forecasting the weather from one of our major news outlets. They use four different models and try to look at all of those models and make sense out of them as to whether or not it's going to snow and if so, how much and how long and, you know, what the impact on the environment will be. We're doing the same thing. We're in the initial stages of this. We're also looking at our schools differently. So, uh, you know, for the last 10 years, capacity, the need for space has kind of overwhelmed a lot of the other efforts in renovation and upgrading of schools. So we're trying to get back to a better balance on that. And, uh, you know, as Ms. Marn knows, it's all about money. And I would say for your listeners, check out the state of Maryland. We are the only system, and this is not Jack Smith's. I've done nothing to improve this circumstance. This is this county's long commitment to forward funding of schools. This county has not waited for the state to okay the project and provide the percentage of the 
money, 50% of the money to build. They have forward funded the new schools, the renovations, the additions, uh, updates in a way that no one else in the state and very few in the nation do. And so while I understand her point and agree with her that uh, overutilization is a significant problem here, it's not that the county government or the school system has been lax or indifferent to it. We've actually gained almost 25,000 students in the last 12 years, about 25. Do you realize that of the 14,000 school systems in this country, about 10,000 of them have 2,000 or fewer students? So we've gained the number of students of a large school system on top of our 138,000 students we had 12 years ago. It's been profound. I will tell you one piece of news that I think is interesting, and that is that we were growing by 2,500 students or thereabouts for the last several years. This year, we grew by 1,000 students. That's a significant drop and in the growth, significant drop in the growth. And next year, we think we're on track to grow by only about 1,000 students. That, if that sustains over time, that will give some relief. But we have a lot of big classes between age grade five and grade 10 that still have to work their way through this system. And so very complex situation, one that once again, we think about and work on every day here, but it doesn't have an easy answer. There are no easy answers. If there were, the problem would have been solved. One of the programs that's taking place in the school system right now is the, the countywide effort to uh, redraw school boundaries. We're in the early days of this project. There was a hearing earlier this month where the public could weigh in on their thoughts on what factors an outside consultant can use to draw new boundaries, correct? Yes. Why use an outside consultant? Isn't, wouldn't Montgomery County, wouldn't you have people on your staff who know the county far better and could draw better lines than bringing somebody from the outside? Well, first of all, there is no study to draw new boundaries. This is an analysis of our current utilization, and attached to that utilization, the board would like to see if there are opportunities for diversification with as we balance out the utilization. Those are both factors in the policy that they adopted in October, along with sustainability. In other words, if I'm redistricted two years ago, I don't have to be redistricted again in the next few years so that my children have to keep moving or, you know, I'm I, my family keeps being moved around. And geographic distances. So the, the outside consultant will have to look at all of those things. Utilization, they'll have to look at those other three factors that I just named, geographic distances, sustainability over time. That means they got to consider what we've just done in the last few years, what we're doing right now, and what we'll do in the next few years in terms of building, additions, all of those things, and then diversity. What are there opportunities to uh, more level out the level of poverty or to have students of different races, cultures, languages? which spend, uh, be in the same school together to a greater degree. We have a lot of diversity across many, many schools, not all, uh, but that's got to be done in a reasonable, thoughtful way. It cannot be a knee-jerk reaction or something we do quickly. So this study is about analyzing that, coming back to the board uh, you know, a year from uh, April, May, or June, it says in the spring of 2020 in the resolution, with a report that says this is kind of your whole system and the, these are some of the opportunities for utilization and some of the opportunities to meet those other goals at the same time. And so the reason we could get NCPS staff to do this, the problem is we would have to employ the staff because it will be a, a full-time job for the better part of a year. And so it makes more sense to use an external consultant rather than employing somebody to do it and then because that's, that's the job they will do. And so I think we're better off not to add employees but rather use a consultant and then ask our employees working with our board and their, their 
policy positions to think about what does this re- analysis tell us? What are the opportunities? What is our next six-year capital improvements program telling us? And where are there places that we can maybe think differently about how we will do business in the future uh, in terms of supporting our students and our families and using our school building, building to their maximum potential in a more even way? And by that, I mean just space just using space, but also look for other uh, uh, advantages that can be built in around diversity and around sustainability, so sustainability of enrollment. So once again, hugely complex topic, but the thing I want everybody that listens to your program to understand is there will be no boundaries changed based on this analysis. This analysis is an analysis, not a boundary-changing effort. Okay. I've talked to a handful of parents who have, who are a little concerned about, I guess, the diversity angle of it. Uh, what they're afraid of is that Montgomery County will take a step away from neighborhood schools in order to expand the diversity in, in a particular uh, school. What do you tell those folks? Well, I think the, the key here is where are there opportunities within uh, neighborhood schools and communities to bring about greater diversity and better utilization of schools. We have a great number of schools. If you drive across this county as much as I do, you see those green signs on every corner. And sometimes you will see three of them within four blocks. And so I think we look for opportunities where they exist, but the idea that we would move children from Silver Spring to uh, Clarksburg or from Germantown to Bethesda, the, the resources that would take and the time away from learning and away from playing and away from recreation and family would be unreasonable. And so we've got to look for opportunities that make sense and then uh, bring about better utilization, greater diversity of income and race and culture where the opportunities present themselves in this analysis. Okay. Bridget Howe has a child in Arcola Elementary School, and she raises a question that's been on my mind uh, literally for years. My concern about the disparities in outcomes between different races and socioeconomic groups is that it reflects a long-time opportunity gap, and I want to really understand what the school system is doing to address that. I actually was a Tacoma Park magnet student myself 30 years ago, um, 35 years ago, and when it was when it was first started as a way to address that gap, and we have the same problems now when I have a child in the school system, but that's really also related to the segregation in our schools, which is my other concern, which is that we see a real inequality in opportunity between students that students get in school in, in the W school, so to speak, and then schools, for example, in the Down County Consortium or Watkins Mill High School, where I graduated from. And those are there's there's a lot to unpack there about what the challenges are and what the potential solutions are. But I feel like that's work that's important. We've been talking about the achievement gap in uh, this county for literally decades. She mentions she was part of an effort to try to improve the achievement gap when she was, uh, I guess, in middle school. So what needs to be done? What can be done? And what should we expect? Well, there's a lot of work still to be done. Work has been done over the the decades to improve that circumstance. And that improvement is uh, has a lot of variability and it is very uneven when you look at it. But you can find areas in Montgomery County and the state and in the nation uh, where there has been considerable improvement. And so what you have to do is take a more fine-grained look at it. So let's start, for example, with Arcola, the school she referenced. We're moving with Arcola and Nix to a longer school year. 
here because there are high levels of poverty in those schools. And we know research is clear. In fact, I just walked out of a meeting before I started talking to you on the phone where we were looking at our extended learning opportunity programs this summer. You see some real advancement with some programs like ELO SAIL and the learning opportunity uh, around reading and mathematics. So by extending the school year at Arcola and, and Roscoe Nix Elementary Schools, we know that that is a real access opportunity and achievement effort. And we need to do that at more schools and we need to uh, really look at the amount of time and resources that we provide. Montgomery County has been a leader in providing differentiated resources to schools. We need to do more frankly. And people say, well, we can't lose the excellence and they're, they're absolutely spot on because if you lose the excellence of the school system and, and what works for so many students in every single school in this county, then you don't get, ever get to equity because there's no such thing as mediocre equity. You've got to have high levels of excellence across your school system in order for all children to, to take advantage of that and, and have that. I'll talk to you about the most current thing that we're working on. In fact, it's going to launch here in a couple of week and then all the information behind it. Uh, we've been working on what we call evidence of learning for two years, and that's a way to know using multiple measures, classwork, tasks across a grade level, assessments, internal and external and classroom-based, to use multiple measures to see how students are doing and how individual students are doing and how student populations are doing. That's, that's a critical part of the infrastructure. We have that built. We'll always keep refining it, but it's built. We've also changed the school improvement planning process to focus much more on five focus groups of students. And those students are African-American students in poverty, not in poverty, Hispanic students in poverty and not in poverty, and all other students, white, Asian, students of multiple races in poverty. So we've covered poverty and we've covered our students of color. Now people will say, why aren't you talking about Asian and white students in this? We do. We monitor their progress. If you look across our schools, in virtually every single school, the Asian and white students who are not in poverty in Montgomery County are meeting or exceeding the 90% of, of the measures. They are, and, and certainly we want to, if it's 94%, we're going to find those other six students out of every 100 in a school. But this is about the disparities that exist. And that's what her question was about. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to launch the third piece of this work. The first piece was evidence of learning. It gives us the tools to use. The second piece is what happens in the school building to specifically, intentionally, purposefully meet the needs of students in that school building, especially those where the student population is experiencing a, a disparity. This part is called the equity accountability model, and this will be the ability for all of our staff, all of our stakeholders, all of our families and parents, our county government to look at each school and see what is the disparity for African-American students not in poverty in this school? What is the disparity for Asian, white, and students of two or more races or other, you know, other students experiencing poverty? What's their disparity? Hispanic students, both in poverty and not in poverty. Because people want to talk often about, you know, well, it's poverty. we got to solve poverty. In my lifetime, and I'm, you know, 61 years old, I don't think we're going to see income equality. And certainly the school district isn't going to bring that about. So what's our responsibility as a school system to make sure that every student and every student population has access, opportunity, and gets the high levels of achievement. 
And that's what this next set of measures is about. And it will help schools really hone in on their work in their school improvement planning process. It'll help them understand that there are students of every race, culture, income level, background, language that are achieving at the highest levels in every school but not all students. And when we look at those different characteristics of student populations, there are disparities among those groups of students. So when people say, is it race? Absolutely. Does poverty have an impact on that? Absolutely. Do they sometimes intersect? Absolutely. We've got to pay attention to this and we've actually got to take action on it. And I can give you, a, we, don't, we don't have the time right now, but I, I can give you lots of factors where we're making tremendous growth, like access in, in pre-K, like increased numbers of students completing Algebra 1 successfully by the end of eighth grade, over 3,000 more in the last two years, especially students of color and students in poverty, like a couple thousand more students from those student populations in the most rigorous high school program. That's the way will make growth. What happens in the school is where the learning happens, but we've got to know and we've got to pay attention to the results and then act on them. We can't just keep accepting that this is the way it should be because it doesn't have to be this way if we do our work. Well, I think on that note, it'd be a good time to wrap up. Thank you, Dr. Smith, for being with us. This has been Montgomery Talk. Don't miss the other podcasts in the Montgomery Talks Education MCPS 2020 series featuring Montgomery County Parent Teacher Association Vice President Laura Stewart and Montgomery County Education Association Vice President Jennifer Martin. And join us next time for Montgomery Talks. Thank you.